Chapters twenty nine and thirty of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter twenty nine. After the marriage. We took leave of the old minister, who shook hands warmly with us at parting, repeating his benediction. We returned to the hotel, where Anglesea paid the bill and reclaimed our bags. Then we went to the station, where we had to wait some little time for the London train. It came up about nine o'clock. We entered it, and were off to London. The daylight journey was even more pleasant than our festive night ride. I, who had been so confined all my life, could see the beautiful and varied scenery, the lakes and mountains of Northumberland, the moors and forests of Yorkshire, the castles, country seats, hamlets, and farmhouses along the way. And to me, all this was novel and delightful. We reached London at nightfall, and there we parted with Anglesea, who returned to Brighton to rejoin his friends, the Middlemores. As we were really very tired, with our twenty-four hours of travel, without sleep, we went to the Norfolk Hotel for the night. The next day we spent in seeing some of the sights of London, which I had never seen, and which, of course, filled me with wonder and interest. Indeed, all my life since I had left Weirdwaste was marvelously changed and enlarged, even as if I were born in a new world." The next morning we took the tidal train from London Bridge, and went down to Dover to meet the Calais boat. "'We will spend a month in Paris, my soul,' said Luigi to me, as we entered the train. "'A full month, no less my life.' "'But have you not to go immediately to Italy?' I inquired. "'Oh, no, I am recalled. That is, I am permitted to return, not commanded to do so,' he explained. "'Oh, then I misunderstood you.' "'Yes,' he said.' "'And your estates, dear Luigi, are they restored to you?' I next inquired, without one mercenary thought in my heart. "'Yes,' he replied, with a curious smile. "'Such as they are, my love, and life, they are restored to me.' "'What do you mean?' I questioned. "'They were not worth keeping from me, my own. Yet fear not, I am not without resources. We shall spend a gay month in Paris.' And so we did. We reached that city the next morning, and took apartments at the Splendid. If to my rustic mind Brighton had been a delight, Paris was now a rapture. Is there, I asked of Luigi, after only one day's experience of the city, is there another place in all this world so heavenly as Paris? He looked at me a few seconds in silence, and then replied, with more knowledge than his years could have promised, No, my soul, there is no place on this planet so celestial or so infernal as this city. I stared at him in dismay. Never fear, my love. You shall never see or hear the infernos of the city. That day I took time to write to my father. I had not an hour's leisure during our mad journeys to do so before. I told him all the circumstances and all the experiences of outer and inner life that had driven me to take my fate in my own hands and go away with Luigi Saviola to be married, and I gave him all the details of the journey and the ceremony and I ended by imploring him to forgive us both and to receive us on a visit. After that act of duty, I plunged with Luigi into all the gaieties of gay Paris, and saw no sign of the infernos. Music, the drama, balls, excursions, these filled up our days for a month of mad rapture. Then, about the middle of December, we went down to Marseilles and took a steamer to Naples, where we arrived in health, spirits, and safety. I had often questioned Luigi about his family, but he told me he had none to speak of. He was an only child. His father and mother were among the angels in heaven. His uncle was a priest and missionary in Brazil. 
His two aunts were nuns, one in a Benedictine convent in France, the other in an Augustine sisterhood in Spain. I had questioned him about his home. He had described to me a half-ruined and wholly uninhabitable castle, situated among the forest-covered mountains of the wild Abruzzo. But, oh, how I longed to go there! All my love of the historic, the romantic, the picturesque was engaged in that longing. On our landing at Naples I proposed to go, but he told me that at this season of the year the roads were so very bad as to render the journey impracticable. He took me to the Vittoria, where we rested for a few days. Here again I wrote to my father, telling him of my first letter, which I feared had never reached him, and repeating at length the story of my marriage, and the plea for his pardon. I waited weeks for an answer before I gave up hope. Naples did not offer many sources of amusement, but we availed ourselves of all that was to be obtained. It was during our sojourn in this city that I gradually learned, what I was very unwilling to believe and very deeply distressed to know, namely, the nature of those resources of which Luigi had spoken to me. They were the gaming tables, at which he was almost always a successful player. My hero and martyr and patriot was a gambler. It was a great grief, and I never really recovered from it. He won large sums of money and lavished gifts upon me which gave me no pleasure. About the middle of February we went to Rome for the carnival, for Lent was rather late this year. And after the week of orgies we still remained in the Eternal City until the end of March, that I might see all its glories, and, ah me, not a few of its shames. In April we went to Venice, the city of a hundred isles. I thought I had seen the most marvelous and enchanting things in the world, but here again wonder upon wonder burst upon my amazed soul. Why should I go on writing all this like the index of a guidebook? You and I have gone over Europe together. You know me, and may judge what it was to me the first time. Let me be brief now. Luigi, wherever we went, pursued his profession, and was never without revenues. I looked in vain for any sign of heroism, self-devotion, or patriotism in him. Sometimes in the cities we passed through, in the public gardens, or the parlors of hotels, I heard questions discussed which stirred my blood, questions of the rights of man and all its ramifications, questions that made my heart beat in sympathy. They never moved him. And I wondered, once I asked him, if he really had lost all interest in the welfare of the world. He shrugged his shoulders and replied that he had never felt any. On another occasion, when I spoke of the elevation of mankind, he answered, We are young, we are fair, we are healthy, we are happy. Let us enjoy ourselves and let mankind go to Hades. My dark-eyed Luigi was neither hero nor martyr, neither patriot nor humanitarian. He was only a beautiful and joyous youth, bent on making the merriest of every hour of life at cost of anybody else, except of himself and me. Oh, how I was disappointed in him! A broken idol is a very sad event in the life of a romantic dreamer, I fancy. I began to try to remember how I had ever got the idea that he was a patriot, and a political refugee, and the rest of it and I recollected that it was from Anglesia and from Madame de la Champe. He, Luigi, had never pretended to be anything but my lover, and he was my lover still. He continued to be my lover to the last of his short young life. I must pass on now to the tragedy of our marriage. CHAPTER thirty, AWAKENING There is not in this world of sin a soul so deeply sunk therein, Thronged though it be with crimes and cares, Revenges, malice, despairs. However dire the phantoms there, 
however pestilent its air. But in its thoroughfares night and day, there ever is some golden ray, like a sweet child from home astray, some light of heaven, some fragment thence, of primal love and innocence, which keeps the angels on its track, to lure and win and lead it back. William H. Holcomb We lived at the best hotels in every town and city where we stopped, but we never stayed long at any place. Saviola was too successful a gambler for that. He was always kind to me, and would have loaded me with jewels and costly dress, but that I would have none of them, for my soul was troubled by the way in which he made his money, a way that he no longer tried to conceal from me. I had periodical fits of homesickness, during which I wrote to my father and to my teachers, but without in any instance receiving a reply. Then I would write again and again, with no better result. And finally I would give up hoping to hear from them, and try to resign myself to my fate, until my next attack of homesickness would set my pen in motion again. Later on, not homesickness alone, but remorse and despair and terror seized me. I was beginning to lose all hope of ever being forgiven by my father. And, ah me, I was also beginning to lose esteem for my husband, for whose sake I had left all my friends and relations. Luigi was still fond of me, in that way that a child is fond of a favorite toy, of which he is not yet tired. I had discovered my own self-deception. Other young girls have come to grief and death through their deception by others. I had only myself to blame. Myself had only deceived me. But it was bitter, oh, how bitter, to find out that the hero, martyr, patriot, and humanitarian I had imagined was only a very handsome young gambler, who was not too honest or truthful. My undeceived soul sickened at him and at myself. My very last attack of homesickness found us at Geneva, where we had an elegant suit of apartments in the Hotel Beau Rivage. Again, in one day, I wrote five letters to absent friends, to my father, to Miss Murray, to Madame de la Champ, to Dr. Alexander, and to the Reverend Mr. Clement. From some of these I should surely get an answer. But week after week passed, and no answer came to me. In the second month after our arrival at Geneva, Saviola was suddenly called to Paris. On imperative business, he said, but I had learned to distrust. I could not accompany him. My state of health utterly precluded the idea of my traveling. He took a very affectionate leave of me, and promised to be back again in a few days. A few days is a vague term, yet I was not disturbed by that. He left me, and I never saw his face again. Just one week after he went away my child was born, a boy. I was very healthy, and had a rapid convalescence, notwithstanding the suspense and anxiety I was suffering on account of my father. I wrote to Luigi, to the address he had given me, and informed him of the event but I received no reply to my letter. Yet I got better every day, and I took great comfort and delight in my child. Also I daily expected the return of Saviola to answer my letter in person, for I remembered that he hated to write, and was therefore one of the very worst correspondents in the world. But I was disappointed. Day followed day, week succeeded week, and I neither saw nor heard from Saviola, nor received any answers to any letter written to my father and friends. I knew that my father must long have left the archipelago, but I supposed that he must have, as usual, left orders for any letters that might come for him after his departure to be forwarded to his new address. So though I had expected delay, I had not anticipated final disappointment. It was now the first of October, and many tourists were leaving the lake. 
Saviola had left me amply provided with funds, so that I had no fear of embarrassment, especially as I was very economical, only applying the ill-gotten money to my barest necessities. Besides, I had my boy, so that I was able to wait quite cheerfully the return of my husband. Ah, me! It was not Saviola that I was troubled about. It was my father. At length it occurred to me to write to my father's London bankers to inquire for him, and I wondered that I had never thought of doing so before. On this occasion I received a prompt answer, which was at once encouraging and depressing, as you will see, contradictory as the statement seems. Mr. Rhodes told me that the Earl had taken the Countess to the Canaries for her ladyship's health, and that they had wintered there, but that in May they had sailed for an extensive yachting cruise, from which they were expected to return to England sometime in February. So my father could never have received any of my letters, and was therefore not the unbending, unforgiving, pitiless father I had thought him. He had probably written me many letters whose final destination was the dead letter office. I might still hope for his ready forgiveness. So far the news was encouraging. But then, on the other hand, he would not return until February. This was the depressing feature in the letter. Yet the encouraging circumstances outweighed the depressing item, so that, on the whole, I was more hopeful and more cheerful. As the days of October grew shorter and cooler, I began to be impatient to leave the place, and for this reason eager for the return of Saviola. At length I grew really despondent. It was about this time, the middle of October, that I saw in the little Geneva paper an item that startled and delighted me. It was under the head of arrivals. It was but a line. The Honorable Angus Anglesia, England, Hotel de Burgs. Without an instant's delay, I sat down and wrote a note, asking him to call on me at the Beau Rivage. The thought of meeting one home face, and that the face of my brother's dear friend, Saviola's good friend, my own true friend, who had travelled with us to Scotland to see that I should be regularly married before he left me under the protection of Saviola, filled my soul with delightful anticipations. He came promptly in response to my summons. It was only noon when the waiter opened the door of the little drawing-room where I sat, and announced, The Honorable Mr. Anglesia. I sprang up, and held out both my hands to welcome him. He raised one to his lips, bowed over it, and said, I hope I find you well, madame. Oh, I am so glad, so glad to see you, I exclaimed, at random. He took a seat. I sank into my easy chair, my heart beating with excitement, with tumult, only to see the face of a friend. I am very happy to come to you, he said. I hope Saviola is well, he added, dubiously, as I thought. He is always well, I replied. He is in Paris. You hear from him daily, of course? No, he is a poor correspondent. I shall not hear from him until I see him, I fear. He looked very grave, but made no comment. I hastened to ask him if he knew where my father then was. His reply confirmed the banker's news, the truth of which, by the way, I had never doubted. He said that my father was wintering in the Canaries for the sake of the Countess's health, and that Viscount Glennon, my brother, was with them. This was the reason, then, why I had never heard from my brother. Mr. Anglesia appeared preoccupied while he spoke. Then, after a short silence, he said, "'Ah, madame, pray do not consider me impertinent. Believe me, I speak only in your own interests.' "'As you acted when you went to Scotland with us,' I added. "'Precisely, madame, la princesse.' "'Then speak freely, Mr. Anglesia. I shall not take offence.' "'Then I wish to inquire when you last heard from Luigi Saviola. 
I hated to answer that question, to confess the many days that had elapsed since I had seen or heard from my husband. Yet I answered, I have not heard from him since he left here for Paris six weeks ago. Ah, he said very gravely. But I expect to see him soon, I added. Indeed, he exclaimed in surprise. Yes, indeed, of course, why not? I demanded, in astonishment. He was silent. Why not? I again demanded, uneasily. He looked grave. What do you mean, Mr. Anglesia? I exclaimed anxiously. Ah, madame, he sighed, you know so little of the world, so little of the world. Mr. Anglesia, you distress me. Has anything happened to Saviola? Ah, madame, you were but a child when you went off to marry the Italian. I, knowing full well that I could not prevent that mad act, which was sure to take place, went with you for your sake, for your brother, my friend's sake, to prevent any fatal error from being committed. I thought I had prevented calamity to you. I know better now. Ah, yes. Mr. Anglesia, I said, you frighten me. What has happened? I implore you to tell me. Not now, I cannot, but do not be alarmed. Take courage. I am your friend. I will see you through this trouble. No, you must tell me now. Has, has, has... I could scarcely bear to put the question, but I nerved myself to do it. Has Luigi left me, deserted me? And I sank back and covered my burning face with my hands. How shall I answer your question, madame? But put the question rather to your own intelligence. He left here six weeks ago. He has not returned or written to you since. Anyone less youthful, innocent, and inexperienced than yourself would draw inferences from these circumstances. Will you excuse me now? I will see you this evening, may I? Yes, I answered mechanically. He bowed and left the room. I was alone again. I wished to be alone to collect my thoughts. It had never occurred to me that Saviola would desert me, never. He had ceased to be my king, my hero, my idol. He had revealed himself to be a gambler, a sharper, an adventurer. I had long ceased to love, trust, or respect him. Still, I knew that he was fond of me in his way, and so I never imagined that he could forsake me. And now that the possibility was presented to me, it filled me with more wonder than sorrow or mortification. I was not nearly so much troubled by the possible desertion of Saviola as I had been by the long silence and fancied implacability of my father. I was sorry for Saviola only because, though I had ceased to love or trust or respect the man, I had begun to compassionate him. He seemed so much weaker than I was. With this feeling of pity and regret was mingled one of intense relief. I had so little to lose in losing the man whose life was a constant source of shame and fear to me. But whatever he may have been, his rank was unquestionable. I had been lawfully married to him, and I was the Princess Saviola, and my son was Prince Rolando Saviola. No one could deprive us of these old and honorable, though now empty, titles. I soon reconciled myself to my desertion, even if I did not rejoice in my deliverance. I made up my mind to take my child and go directly to Weirdwaste, my own inheritance from my mother, and there await my father's return to England, then confess the whole truth to him and throw myself upon his love and protection. But, ah, heaven, I did not yet know the worst. End of chapter 30